A wee disclaimer before we begin. We are aware of the recent controversies regarding Army Hammer. We recorded this episode prior to these revelations. We mainly speak about Call Me By Your Name, not about the person. And while we do not wish to kink shame in any way, we think that he's a patriarchal monster and that he needs to be stopped. Thanks. Also, sorry that the episode's late. We were doing hot girl shit. Fuck being good, I'm a bad bitch. I don't know about you, but like, my brain is just absolute mush. We were just talking about being completely done, particularly with the pandemic going on. So if if I'm less coherent than usual, then it's all yeah, if anything, I think my ability to process is just like ground to a screeching halt today. Staring at your profile on, on Napier, just being like, right, just copy and paste. And somehow I just kept clicking the wrong button. I don't even know what like the profile, like I so rarely look at it and it's probably still the fucking hideous photo. Yeah, I can tell you, Sarah, um, you are blonde in the photo on, on Napier. So none of this delicious pink hair, which yeah. is great. I've changed it on um, Work Tribe so that it doesn't have <laughs> my university photo, official photo anymore. It has like me with pink hair, which I quite like. I always have a panic when you have to send a photo or something into something official. And I've got like a folder now on my computer that is like suitable photos <laughs> that, I, that I've gained yeah. from like Facebook. Because whenever a camera comes around, my, my mouth just goes like wide open. Like Chanda Bing style. Yeah, just like, ah! <laughs> like, I've realised as well that I've got a really squint smile. Oh no. One side of my face is just like Cheshire Cat. Like this side is like, I don't know, maybe this cheek gets more action than the other side. Maybe I should like... <laughs> weight training for this cheek or something because like yeah. it's always squint before i ended up having a photo um I, I made my partner take a photo of me with his fancy work camera this year but i normally just like crop out photos from like nights out <laughs> <laughs> which are not the right things to send through maybe they are the right things to send through a conference but there's definitely moments where i've just like had to, i either had to edit out um friends who are drinking or <laughs> also also editing out my partner from like nice photos of the two of us which feels really shady <laughs> Or like ones where I'm doing like a kind of, you know, nice normal face. It's like my wedding photos. And I'm just like, I cannot put in my wedding photos. <laughs> I mean, I think you should. You should use the wedding photos that I made for you. They were good. Yeah, so when I got married, this is when we used to share an office. I came back to just like, my desk was covered. After the honeymoon? After the honeymoon. I mean, we didn't really have much for honeymoon, um, but it's fine. Um, but... <laughs> of course not. You're an academic. You took time for yeah. yourself? What the fuck? I mean, I know, right? <laughs> I it's really, really fucking selfish of me. And I came back to have all my photos from Facebook, my wedding photos, doctored to me marrying Dickens or me mar <laughs> marrying George Eliot and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was I mean it was art there there it was it was kind of beautiful and the, like one of me like kissing Dickens which obviously I set as my profile picture and not my actual wedding photos because that's yeah, weird definitely the podcast is just the culmination of our continuous shit posts towards one another basically I can do that yes <laughs> you moved institution bitch you're gonna have to get something else Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. Today we are talking to Dr. Sarah Art, a lecturer in literature and film studies at Edinburgh Napier University. Sarah has published on some iconic texts from Sex and the City through to Rocky Horror and um, Twilight, which we'll get to. Uh, she's also currently working on her first monograph. Is it your first monograph? It, it is indeed, yes. Okay. <laughs> I want to make sure that I mean it, it's, it's more than both of us so you're yeah exactly <laughs> it's way more I mean also we were looking through earlier we're like oh my god there are like the pages on your research profile just keep going so anyway <laughs> it's because I'm a faithless goddess I'm actually much older than I look <laughs> you're doing some like Dorian Gray stuff yeah, going on yeah yeah. It's like every other article you post like pushes back aging. Is that is that how it works? Like academic yeah. Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> is that why it's always like Twilight's like I am the youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and oh we didn't mention Gossip Girl as well. I've seen a lot of Gossip Girl in that profile, which I'm excited to talk about too. Excited to gossip about. <laughs> but yeah, okay, so the monograph. <laughs> <laughs> the monograph is titled Quiet Pictures, Frin uh, Fringe? <laughs> Fringe? <laughs> Louise, you're going to cut this. Um, nope. <laughs> <laughs> 
The monograph is titled Quiet Pictures, British and French Cinema by Women. Is that still the title? Kind of. Cool. <laughs> Uh, and it focuses on the work of some uh, fantastic women in international cinema. And I say that because I can't for the life of me pronounce their surnames. <laughs> so I was I was frantically Googling, you know, those websites of like howtopronounce.com. And it was just all like terrible automated like robot voices. So I'm just going to leave that to you, Sarah, to talk us through. But when not writing about silence, um, Sarah enjoys writing about lingerie, brothels, vampires and sexual soundscapes, sometimes all at the same time. Welcome to Long My Praxis. Thank you. <laughs> It's very delightful to be here. Yeah, so how do you pronounce all the women that you're working on? Because I, I was looking at it and I was... I mean, I've got Joanna Hogg. I got that one. Yeah. That's at least one. Yeah. So and Lynn Ramsey, nailed that. Yeah. So then there's Celine Siama, who's the one of the French directors, and you probably know her from her most recent film, which was sort of hugely successful, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah, I've been looking at her work for a while and, yeah, finally I'm sort of getting around to sort of doing a book. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, there's Lucille Hatzelovic, who... Oh, that's definitely not what I was pronouncing earlier. Nowhere near. So Lucille Hatzelovic, she's actually the partner of Gaspar Noé, the guy who made, like, Irreversible, the sort of, like, one of the sort of proponents of, like, extreme French cinema in the 90s. I mean, he's still making films, but people are like, oh, Gaspar Noé, again, like... (laughs) You know, another film where people are having live sex and women are being brutalized. Oh my God, like yawn. Yeah. Anyway, Lucille Hatzelovic is is his partner, and she's made these two feature films, both of which are incredible and like really, really, really weird. And I do make my students watch her second film, Evolution, on mm. my science fiction module, and every year people are like whoa kind of why I mean when I was googling how to pronounce her name um, (laughs) I watched a couple of clips I haven't come across her work before but the evolution looks incredible like I mean it doesn't seem to be easily accessible online I I mean in legitimate spaces I never do non-legitimate viewing is not a thing we don't condone that here you wouldn't download a movie you wouldn't download a car you wouldn't steal a car (laughs) <laughs> you wouldn't download an illegal pdf of a very long book that you can't find in the library um <laughs> you wouldn't deprive a publisher of 60 pounds for a chapter <laughs> you wouldn't text your friends to be like does anyone have a discount code for eup because there's a book i want and it's like 80 quid you wouldn't never go to libgen.rus.org never <laughs> <laughs> But there was that, there's a scene in the clip from uh, from Evolution that look, it just reminded me of the album cover for Nevermind. Like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. 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 The baby dicks? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't a baby dick, but it was kind of similar to baby dick. There was like a very, there was a very uh, nubile body in water. Yeah, but I'm definitely going to watch it. It looks cool. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a bit of a like a sort of cephalopod woman vibe as well. If you're into that. Yes. I did also want take a trip to the weird deserted village where they shot some of this movie (laughs) because apparently I am that person. Where was it? Uh, It's on Lanzarote. But it's like super far away on like a really remote part of the island. It is like right on the right on the coast and it's sort of like down this hill and it's basically it's semi deserted and it was creepy as fuck when I was "Mm, vibes. I was gonna say, like, was this a way of you kind of being like, Yeah, let's go on holiday. I heard Lanzarote's lovely this time of year. Fuck yes. (laughs) Or was it more the case of sort of like, dear AHRC, I need money. for a research archive trip to this creepy ass town yeah. i mean yeah, can you imagine no i'm so unfundable it's like it's really not even all that funny but, i mean we're gonna laugh at it so uh, yeah. you're <laughs> <laughs> no i was just like i was just on holiday and i was kind of like i wonder which part of the island they shot this on can i drive there oh i can cool yeah i keep trying to do sort of uh, holidays to like Yorkshire because I still haven't been to the fucking Bronte Parsonage which is probably going to close down with the Covid thing and uh, my partner is just not amused like just just not taking the bait whatsoever I mean you are sidestepping the fact that you went on a sound of music holiday Louise oh yeah I did that was the best day of my life I did the official sound of music tour like your face is just like oh my god (laughs) 
it was honestly the best day of my life and we sang sound of music on the bus although we were on this bus and obviously if you go on the sound of music tour you're expecting people to be big fans but literally it was just our group (laughs) (laughs) no one else everyone else was like just you know sitting on the bus and waiting for the next destination like meanwhile they were pumping fucking sound of music through the speakers because obviously and um nothing nothing when we got to like the gazebo where like obviously uh-huh. you're not allowed in it anymore because people kept like hurting themselves trying to like oh, i thought you were say kept having like sexy dances in there and like taking it too far no because the sound of music is pure and wonderful and- yeah so pure so chaste definitely not about like getting really horny over a nazi it's not that at definitely all. not about that whatsoever but yeah and and like obviously i was recreating the like but like no one else is doing it (laughs) they were just taking like sensible family photos and selfies and i'm just like are you guys fans or not like yeah what are you doing on this tour it was wonderful we jumped up and down the stairs we patted the statue and then stopped. <laughs> please, please stop. You're going to be making dresses out of curtains and everything. The only reason I know this is because I had to watch it with you for your fucking birthday. Anyway, okay. I managed to get through 30 years of my life having never seen that goddamn film. Right, should we get on to more introductions about Sarah? So we normally ask people to introduce themselves by way of a boring fact. So what's yours? Tell us. For us. I'm Canadian. Shocking. <laughs> I am shook. Do you get really upset when people are like, you're American. Uh, no, because I had to get over myself. <laughs> Living in Scotland and uh-huh. constantly being asked that fucking question. And it was just exhausting to get mad. Do you come up with like an alter ego that is like, yeah, I'm Sarah and I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> I like cheese. I like cheese. That's all I know about it. Yeah, yeah cheese is Wisconsin. No, I, I mean... I shouldn't have thought of that, really. But you can still take, you can still do it. There's yeah. still time. Just make sure that you cite us. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to preface every time I do it by, yeah, by clearly acknowledging. Clearly yeah, acknowledging. I, I find that I reference my speech. Yeah, like that's that's not awkward at all. You know, like people respect that as a practice, don't they? I mean, it depends. How do you, how do you cite it in speech? You just then so brackets and then this full citation like how would that work <laughs> i just be like footnote and like lift your foot up and then talk no that was awful are you a dad what is that what kind of- <laughs> because i just altered my position on the chair my foot is like quite close to me so i was like oh anyway we'll move on swiftly we have composed a kazoo jingle for you god i was i was wondering about the kazoo wondering worrying same same so it's, it's coming so it's going to be a summary of your research okay oh, shit. okay you ready yeah that was it that was very nice yeah that's beautiful so so why was that jingle relevant to your research <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, because one of the things that I that I research is silence in the cinema as a technique and as a kind of texture that is particularly used by women directors, which hence the monograph. But yeah, and so that's where I've focused a lot of my research over the last few years, I guess. And yeah, so I found when I was sort of preparing the book proposal was that there had been quite a few books sort of around 2010 like popular books that had sort of come out which were all about like the importance of silence like in everyday life but like sort of secular books you know not like books that were necessarily about like religious contemplation or meditation or anything like that and yeah there were quite a few of them so I looked at quite a few of those as well and that was really interesting because a lot of it was essentially (laughs) there were there are a couple of them that are written by clearly very irritated white men who really just want the city to be quieter around them and like that's clearly the main driving force of the book and I'm just like I don't see how these two things are going to be reconciled (laughs) and the best one that the one that I like the most is one by a woman who's basically like yeah I'm you know I'm in menopause now I've divorced my husband I'm moving to a new house in Scotland and I'm just gonna make it as completely quiet as possible and it's fucking great I've made the tone of the book sound totally wrong but there is a gist of that in in it I mean I'd read it from that description so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like... <laughs> oh the other thing that a lot of the um the guys who write these books about silence are obsessed with is Anna Coke Chambers 
and like going into them and having what I think is actually kind of a secretly macho attitude towards how long they can spend inside those chambers and how much they enjoy being in it, which apparently is totally contradictory to everybody else's experience who really find being inside those spaces really, really unsettling and really uncomfortable. So what, they just create the conditions for like pure silence. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, you have to go to like certain places to, to sort of be able to like access. It sounds like a retreat that Elon Musk would go on, you know, <laughs> like a silent retreat. Yeah. I mean, I wish he would shut the fuck up, but that's something else. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's another <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was, I was really interested in, in sort of people's like perception of, I guess, like silence and especially the, the idea of total silence, which most people find unsettling, including at the cinema and sort of silence, which is just like the absence of dialogue, or maybe there's a lot of, you know, maybe there's room tone, or maybe there's a lot of, you know, there might be a lot of other stuff going on in the soundscape, but because there isn't, you know, music or there isn't dialogue, people suddenly like, you know, I'm sure you've been to watch a quiet movie at the cinema in the before times. And you've seen the audience like start to get picky or like chat to their neighbor. And one of the things that often happens is that people will interpret too much silence as a technical fault. And so you start to get uneasy with it. I mean, Sarah, you're saying this is for the before times. This just sounds like all of my teaching this time. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, this, this was like a really, really strange outcome of COVID finding yourself constantly speaking into a void, you know, a void where there really isn't a lot of other noise. It really is, you know, a sort of unsettling total silence, like both for us as teachers and also for like students who, if they decide that they can bear to speak into the void, you know, which a lot of people don't want to do, which I understand. It's just really difficult, like for sort of multitude of, access reasons as well but it's just like yeah. it's just weird like I mean I'm struggling let alone you guys so well done I had to do a sort of a, a webinar type thing and I couldn't even see the participants because it was like on this on the zoom webinar I mean I don't use a script so I was just talking because I didn't know what the fuck was like I, I couldn't gauge any reaction because usually I just yeah. wait for people to obviously glaze over when I'm just ad big. but I couldn't do that so I, obviously I went well over my time because I'm a dickhead but like <laughs> it's that was the weirdest thing like not even having one nodding face mm -hmm. There's um, no, no social cues to tell you to shut the fuck up. It's really hard. <laughs> I mean, I ignore those cues anyway, but it's nice to like know they're going to be there. Or the funniest thing is like if you've got in a really silent film, sorry to get back to the films. Yeah, or, yeah. like yeah, Sorry to get back on topic. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry to actually, you know. Sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry to um, stop derailing everything. <laughs> Calm yourself, Alex. When you're in a cinema, but if you're in like a small cinema, like the the Grosvenor in Glasgow, which is tiny, mm. like and it's got two screens, and if it's really silent, then you can hear the the sound from the next film as well, and that can have a real impact. I remember watching, I think it was Jane Eyre, like years ago. It was a shit yeah. one with um, Mia, what's her face in? Yeah, yeah, Mia was a character. I think it was something like I think it was something like stupid, like Troll or some shit coming on. Like I can't remember what was playing at that time, but it would be like. Oh, Mr. Rochester, I'm on the moors. And um, then there'd be this fucking troll from the next door, <laughs> like, booming away. It's like, this just really changed the film for me. Yeah. <laughs> like... I think we should probably get back on topic. So um, we asked you for your academic Tinder bio. Yeah. Could you share that with us? And we'll decide. Yeah. Unfundable, but not unfuckable. Claps. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Do you swipe, Alex? Which way would you swipe? Always forget which way is the, the correct way for yes. The but right, yeah. Because it's the right. right. We do it every fucking episode. <laughs> I'll never learn. Uh, yeah, I swipe right because, like, let's be honest, funding is rigged and... Um, Fucking is not. Fucking is not rigged. Fucking is consensual. Funding is not. <laughs> Wish it was. <laughs> I get fucked over more than anything else with yeah. funding. But, yeah. Funding's a con. Fucking isn't. Yeah. Yes. Funding is begged for. Hopefully, sex isn't. I mean, unless that's a thing. Unless that's a thing, in which case, cool. You know, be free. You know. I mean, it's one of those things where it's a bit like I mean, yeah, like the amount of time and effort you've put into an application versus like the payoff you get from fucking like there's just you know there's a, a higher win rate here with one of those yeah the effort to um whatever joy 
trying to think of the, I don't know the, the... trying to make funny jokes haha <laughs> <laughs> my brain is foggy let's just say that you know the satisfaction that you get from giving yourself or somebody else an orgasm it's far greater than the satisfaction you will ever achieve from getting funding or even completing a funding application and we need everyone to remember this I'm literally going to take that into every single time that I've had to be like oh you know what you want if you are now Alex what's the next thing that you need to kind of like put all your energies into that pays like very little off I'm like myself I'm gonna go home and wank. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Just have like a post-it on your laptop, like you could be wanking right now. <laughs> yes, I think that's definitely how I'll get through it. I think it helps really put things in perspective. It's like you could be coming now rather than like figuring out a budget. I mean, who wants to be looking at Excel when you know you could just be like dialing in to like whatever of innumerable porn subscriptions that we've all signed up to during lockdown i mean come on everyone should just own up to that right like i mean i'm intrigued i don't subscribe to things as you have heard earlier i'm I'm a purveyor of free items on the internet (laughs) you don't know if it's ethical though yeah ethical porn is really hard to come by like you know free range it's typical i mean also just like you know those tube sites it's such a fucking journey right like no it's not worth it you click on it you're like i just feel bad and sad for these people yeah and you're just like i did not i didn't want to look at that It's definitely not so close. In the corner of my screen. And what is with all the constant, like, I feel like this year during lockdown, and I worry about the correlation between the two. Why is it all about step siblings? When did that become a thing? God, yeah, that's a huge thing, actually. It's huge. I've been wondering that as well. I'm like, I'm sorry, but when exactly did incest suddenly become a huge motif? I love how you call it a motif. I'm a massive innocent here. It's really prevalent, though. Yeah, no, it is. I love that. I had no idea this. Just go on later, Louise, you know, Google something. I think if you want to, like, avoid accidental exposure to too much, like, pseudo-incest kind of motifs... I mean, no, subscription sounds like the way to go. I would recommend subscription. There's a lot of, sort of pseudo-siblings like, that end up married in Victorian literature, so maybe I shouldn't be so shocked. Like, no, I mean... Grow up together and that happens. Yeah. Also, I mean, I suppose let's not underestimate the impact of, you know, VC Andrews Flowers in the Attic and, you know, various other things. <laughs> yeah, it's like a weird... It's like a weird motif and it's a weird taboo and I'm just like, I don't know, I mean... I'm not here for it. I was just trying to think then of like what are famous incest moments in in film and I was like Star Wars I guess is the one that rings out for me in terms of like a major like what that's my sister cool to do my funding application it while we're on the topic of films and sex (laughs) why are the gays so breathy when you watch films about the gays, why why do they all have asthma? But they're so gaspy. I'm thinking like Carol, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's all about the breath. I have to say, like, this is something that started to interest me only very recently. And as an outgrowth, I think of like my interest in, in like silence and like what else is kind of going on in that in that space because you you know, you can't really have total silence on on film. So there's always usually something else going on in that space and like this sort of interest in what else is going on in that space and so <laughs> yeah and so I started thinking about about Call Me By Your Name and I recent, only very recently watched it with like a really incredible set of headphones on and I was just holy shit it's really amazing like you can hear things like you can hear Oliver like stroking the wall at one point you know when he sort of comes down the stairs in the villa on like the first day he like strokes the texture of the wall and you can actually hear that Bilf. the top notes in this movie are things that squelch basically like <laughs> oh, we're getting there Sarah don't worry and and you know like that is egg fruit and head that are the, those are the things that you hear. Thank you for giving us the episode title. I mean, right now the episode's entitled Soundtrack to a Blowjob, but I think that Egg, Fruit and Head might win. Sticking a peach on the end of my peen. Has that scene with the peach yeah. made you rethink your use of the emoji? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess like, I don't really, I guess I don't really use that emoji. Like, but will you now? (laughs) Will you use it specifically to symbolize I'm really horny. I want to read Heart of Darkness and fuck a peach. Yeah. 
like that's the thing when I was watching the film I was like remember that he was reading Heart of Darkness before this like what the fuck I know that is such a weird choice I think for that for that scene because I was like I was looking at that again the other day and I'm like is that oh my god that is Heart of Darkness is that, <laughs> that's such a weird choice right Does Empire really you know give you the horn as uh, Alex wrote in the notes <laughs> I don't know if this has ever happened to, you know, either of you. I mean, not that I'd wish to cast cast aspersions, but sometimes when you are reading a book that is actually really boring by, you know, a long dead male author, your mind just starts to wander. And then sometimes you maybe start to feel aroused, like not because of what you're reading, but just because kind of you're bored. Because it's the absolute opposite of what you're reading. Yes, we're back at funding applications, Sarah. We're there again. I mean, I think that was also something that often happened to me when I was working on my PhD because part of it was on Henry Jones. So, <laughs> my God, how did you ever finish? I mean, I'm sure she finished plenty of times. But um, dum, I set it up. I set it up. It was great. It's great. Well done, B. Pat on the back. <laughs> Good one, Alex. Good one, Alex. We were thinking as well. The sensible question would be to ask you how you get your five a day. What is the best fruit vegetable if you wanted to use it as a masturbatory aid? Do you think, in your academic opinion? Oh, in my academic. As a doctor. Yeah. As a doctor, we're all doctors yeah. here. We're all doctors here. Yes. <laughs> mm. You know, pears are readily available in this climate. Oh, I like that you're going local. Yeah, That's good. generally have quite a like pleasing texture and scent, and a versatile shape. I feel as well. Provided they've not gone sleepy, you know. Nobody oh, no one wants that. a sleepy pear. No one wants that, right? You know, a pear that is firm but verging on ripeness, I would imagine could be a very pleasant experience. Only if we're talking about fruit, because if we put that into a human context, someone that is verging on ripeness is maybe not for you. Uh, yeah, no, no, clearly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, pears are kind of fuzzy, right? Like no, not all of them. Aren't they? No. Can... Are you thinking? No. <laughs> Sarah's like, oh, when did you last like touch hair? My God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't really know. I don't. I don't. I'm now trying to think. The last pet, the only pairs I've ever had are those ones that are like you know fancy ones at restaurants that they've like blanched or some shit. Which even those aren't fuzzy. So I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Never mind. I had a pair this morning. Did you? They're in season right now. The zero waste market because we're fancy. No, I, th- I think. But I think, um, isn't there like a medieval torture device that's like shaped like a pear? No, no, there, there is. And I can't remember what it's called, but it's like shaped like a pear. So the idea is, because obviously you can insert it quite well, but it has like a screw. So the, the pear like gets wider and wider and wider and essentially tortures you by ripping you apart through its gut. Thanks, Louise. Great. Helpful. That's, that's, yeah. Did that's, I just ruin pears? That's an image. That's an image. <laughs> This is why subscriptions are the way forward. Because otherwise, danger. Yeah, otherwise you just don't know what kind of imagery is going to like just pop up there. On this thread of like torture and punishment, you have also actually written about representations of punishment, particularly in relation to Orange is the New Black. So I was wondering, (laughs) do you think the true punishment on that show was just listening to Piper's never-ending whining shit? I mean, probably, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, now I think I would probably write about that show quite differently than what I than what I did at you know than what I did at the time. You know, like some academics, particularly like the American academics, were really reading it in the context of like critical race studies, for example, and like you know prison studies and everything. Yeah, and then other people were looking at it like much more. Like my colleague sort of writes about it from um, a position of someone with knowledge of the history of women's imprisonment and things like that, and and particularly the sort of women in prison genre and the way that, especially the early seasons of Orange is the New Black, intersect with that genre, and particularly with reliance on sort of like tropes of lesbianism and, and everything as like something that we expect to see, you know, in that genre and the history of sort of queer representation in that respect. Yeah, because I think in the UK, like one of the big series that suddenly there were lesbians on TV was um was Bad Girls. Yeah. Which, was, which I don't really remember much of because I remember being kind of very 90s, like li- lipstick lesbian-y. And it, I think it was, trying to half remember this because it, it was... I think it was the warden and um, one of the prisoners that had the relationship from what I remember. That sounds likely because there's a similar kind of setup in a lot of other sort of like 
women and prison movies as well. Do you think that there needs to be maybe a sort of initially in order to show same-sex relationships on screen that there needs to be that same-sex space in order to codify it and in order to make it something that can be sort of shown like the fact that it's happening within that same-sex space gives access like initially when we weren't seeing same-sex relationships on screen yeah that's definitely a big part of the sort of women in prison thing but I was also thinking about this in terms of things like The Hunger and the way that people used to talk about films like The Hunger like there's a great bit in the documentary The Celluloid Closet it's sort of a Hollywood screenwriter is like recounting this story of being told to go and see The Hunger. You know, it's like, there's this great lesbian film. You know, there's like a love story. You know, there's this great love scene. They're vampires, but you gotta see it. I take your point about like, there needs to be this space, like, and sometimes it's like a really weird, unexpected space, like the space of horror, the space of prison, you know? So then you run into a lot of problems around that where it's kind of like a space of fantasy but also a space which tends to be associated with deviance in ways that can be quite negative and you see why like especially you know our our students and and you know sort of scholars who are coming up like have a lot of take a lot of issue with retreading those kinds of representations and sort of saying like this is not actually that progressive and Mm -hmm. you know we would like things to be more integrated more ordinary enforces structures of heteronormativity. I mean, like, I'm thinking that as putting sort of Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Call Me By Your Name kind of on the, a different end of that spectrum where the, these relationships were taking place in, like, like really bougie settings, <laughs> right? They're not kind of, like, deviant criminal settings and that kind of, like, discourse um, surrounding that. It's more sort of sumptuous luxury spaces. Oh, my God, when I was watching Call Me By Your Name the other day, just as a, a refresher, I was like, fuck, I want to go on holiday. I want to go to Italy. Oh my God, I want to be in this villa. I want to be trilingual. And I want to be trilingual. I want my, I wish my parents were like just archaeologists. What do they do? Who even knows what they do in that film apart from like just have a great house? But also the same with like, you know, Portrait of Lady on Fire, just lots of beautiful billowing gowns and incredible Baroque settings. Like it's a very, like, but I found both films thinking back about them. There's a real kind of a luxe aesthetic that's going on with it, which again, in some ways, like I don't know if that's supposed to be kind of condoning or I don't know there's something going on with that thoughts <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah you're definitely not wrong about that in relation to those two films and I guess then you sort of have an opposite problem where there's a sense that oh you know privilege insulates you from reality and and you see that as well with like some of the ways in which critiques that were leveled at call me by your name like not not just critiques about like why is there no on-screen sex and there were a lot of those, and, and rightly so, right? Why is there no on-screen sex? But also, considering when the film is set, you know, like the specter of AIDS is completely absent. There's no sense of the history of that, of, you know, the history of that period in relation to, you know, sort of gay culture or anything like that. And there is this sense that, like, elite, super-moneyed atmosphere insulates the couple from yeah. anything else that's going on. On the other hand, I would say one of the pleasures of that film, I think, for a lot of viewers is the fact that this couple doesn't encounter any kind of obstacle that you often encounter in other uh, coming out narratives. I can see that as something that is potentially quite attractive and is, is part of that film's uh, thrall. In a similar kind of way to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, really, it's like they're in this isolated location. There is basically nothing for the most part to get in the way of this relationship forming. And that's part of the pleasures of the film is that you don't have to overcome some of the conventional obstacles like your parents don't approve and, you know, or there's some dude who's always trying to get in the middle of you when you're trying to get with your lady friend and all that kind of thing. The penis always interrupts. Like, yeah. just get fuck off. That's the um, like irrigate thing that the penis always interrupts the flaps. Yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I'm half remembering. Are you are you, are you citing now? Brackets irrigate. Yeah, irrigate. Nineteen seventy something. Yeah, yeah. Sounds about right. Woman is not one. The lips that are together and flapping, yeah. flapping and always talking. <laughs> My vagina talks. Sorry, I'm really tired. Um. <laughs> make make silence your praxis louise there we go Irrigate is like the, the the sex which is not one the flaps which are two that's yeah. the 
Yes, it's, it's that the lips are always meeting and they've got multiple zones, so like nipples and clitoris and stuff like that, whereas men are just like the peen. So that's a one single entity. And yeah. Louise, please tell us more about the penis. There's a fucking brilliant quote from Helen Sisu at one point where she's just like, yeah, it's something like woman with her like with her multiple plateaus of desire and you're just like right off <laughs> yeah <hello. laughs> thinking about portrait of a lady on fire and mm. like call me by your name and just just all all, all the gays um is there yeah. such a thing and like we're talking about that sort of space of like privilege in order to access these relationships is there maybe such a thing as like a gay gaze that's right it's all about the gays in both sense of the words like is, is that a construct like when we think about like the male gaze or is there something that's being constructed there that's like how we view um homosexual relationships particularly those that are set in historical context or in context of fantasy yeah i mean there's there's lots of it's it's really funny because you know whenever we talk about the idea of like the gays right people always talk about laura mulvey and everything but a lot of the time for some reason and this happens in popular discourse as well as academic discourse people tend to forget that there are like other people who are also writing in response to laura mulvey at the same time and i'm constantly having to sort of go i'm like yes yes very influential important ideas but also these other things over here may i direct your attention to them so i mean like you know richard dyer has been you know writing forever about ideas of like the male pinup and stuff like that and there's there's lots of there's lots of work on that yeah there's a thing by steve neal which is basically talking about the idea of sort of writing in response to mulvey about how like particular kinds of male gazes tend to operate in Hollywood and that a queer gaze at the time when he's writing and sort of this is like the early to mid 80s is something that is sort of actively thwarted by the techniques of class of of Hollywood cinema and it's a really convincing argument and you, you know there's loads of examples you know you can still sort of see that that kind of thing at work quite a lot but definitely particularly with the rise of you know the sort of new queer cinema movement in the 90s and everything like that people really start to talk more about the idea of a queer gaze and what that might look like but this is usually coming from filmmakers who are themselves queer or you know identify in various ways along the lgbtq plus sort of spectrum and everything and they're usually coming at material from an independent perspective. These are not people who are working within Hollywood. There's lots of really interesting stuff, particularly if you look at something like The Celluloid Closet, like Vito Russo's book of the same name, and then the documentary that sort of gets made on the back of that. Um, there's lots of really interesting stuff about audiences reading stuff as queer, like particularly things like Marlena Dietrich in Morocco, um, one of the classic examples and everything, and, and sort of the idea that audiences do things with these texts that are not entirely expected and that's also where like the women in prison thing comes in like mm -hmm. you know the sort of the lesbian vampire or like the bisexual vampire part of that as well yeah one of the interesting thing i guess with more recent films that have sort of made it you particularly something like call me by your name i think is really emblematic of this and you get it a little bit with brokeback mountain back in 2005 as well it's just so long ago i just i feel like i watched that film like you know, three years ago, fuck me, 2005. Sorry, carry on. I can't quit you, Jack. <laughs> but you get this sense that, oh, okay, maybe there are going to be sort of more mainstream offerings that mm. showcase, that showcase, in, in this case particularly, relationships between men, you know, erotic relationships between men. Because there's also some, there's been some debate as well amongst critics about like, should we really be calling like, uh, you know, should we really be saying that um, Oliver and Elio are gay? Like, isn't it more correct to say that they're bisexual? And there's debate, you know, in, in the book, you know, it's a bit different. Elio is a bit more like, seems to be sort of equally into like men and women, for example, and in the film it, that's narrowed. But I mean, lots of things happen when you adapt work. So, I mean, to be honest, Elio just seemed like he was just like horny. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. Yeah. Like he was just really, really randy all the time. Like fair play. He's 17. Like, yeah. Yeah. Hence the peach. Hence the exactly. Peach. Yes. Hence the peach. Yes. Yeah. Hearing from reviewer two be like. Oh, 
what you're saying about queer readings of films mm. just my mind is just remembering something that I read in like I think it's like my first or second year of uni I don't know maybe maybe you know it is it's this absolutely batshit reading of The Wizard of Oz as a lesbian fantasy do you do you know this it's like it's, no. it's, oh, it's, it's fucking it's like it's actually you know when those like one of those few academic articles that just make you laugh because it's just it's quite outlandish but I just enjoyed it so much so yeah. basically the argument is is that lesbians are either butch or femme yeah obviously there's only two versions obviously being in a same-sex marriage when you get married you have to make this formal decision and yeah who's the man who's the man I mean, my wife will kill me if I decide. But, um, <laughs> but this whole thing of like the two witches in The Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch is your obvious butch lesbian. Her skin is green. She is your obviously coded lesbian <laughs> because butch lesbians are, are coded and they're obvious. They're always green. They're always green. Always butch green. lesbians are always green. You can see them. Whereas the more insidious one is Glinda because she's Ooh, all femme. she's hyper feminized and actually she holds Dorothy very close if you look at the body language there so she's like the feminine and basically the Wizard of Oz is about Dorothy's choice between being a butch lesbian and being a femme lesbian and that the the ruby slippers are just vaginas that she puts her feet into and that there's vaginas everywhere in Emerald City like if you look at the architecture, it's all sort of V shapes. Oh, and that the tornado itself, because it is a phallic shape when you look at it, but it has a hole in the middle. It is both peen and vagine, and uh, <laughs> yeah. So basically, it's all about the lesbians. Thoughts? <laughs> I mean. I have definitely read and probably talked some shit in my time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always entertained by like a really elaborate reading of something like that. I'm always willing to sort of interact with it up to an extent. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, I'm not sure that (laughs) it's really deserved to be published. Yeah. Just like your friend's zine where it, would have been great, you know, and we could all just appreciate it for what it is, which is that person's elaborate hot take on their personal response. I do love reading those things though, because you're like, God, I will get published. Yeah. Like this this yeah. made it. Like I'm good. I'm gonna be fine. Yeah. Like if this made it into the world yeah. through yeah. peer review. Yeah, this double blind <laughs> peer review thought this was fine. But I'm, yeah, like I mean No revisions. I'm just a fan of just anything that's just batshit. I love a batshit review. Researchers. 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 I wanna bring up Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. Um <laughs> Because I had to teach this on a course that you made. (laughs) And I just have one question. I'd like to be clear that uh, that was my colleague's decision to put that film back on the module because about a decade ago, I had a conversation with the colleague that I inherited that module from. And she was like, oh my God, Sarah, thank God you've joined the team. Is there anything better than Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein that we can have on this first? No, there isn't. No. Oh, there is. And I was like, well, how do you feel about teaching Georges Franju's eyes without a face? Les yeux sans visage. I mean, needless to say, I've probably traumatized or made acolytes of generations (laughs) with that change. Because some people are like, you're a monster. And other people are like, you are my people. And I'm here for this. 10 minutes of facial surgery made by the founder of the Cinémathèque Française. I mean, they sound like better people than the Branner Boys or whatever you want to call them. Like, I don't know. That's that it's film. Art. Like, I like I, I loved it. Like, Because you were like, I've got to watch this because I'm, I'm teaching it. And I was like, I have seen it many times. I love it. It's so bad. I hate it. I love it so much. In the before times, we had some of a dinner party around at mine. And my wife was just like, I hate you all. What the fuck is this? Um, just because of like, he's he's very sweaty. He's um, so sweaty. Um, very sweaty, and also gratuitous staircase shots. Oh, the staircase is great though. I just like yeah. so sweeping and grand, and no banister. Wild people, like God, I would fall off so much. Yeah, my favorite bit is when um. When he reanimates Elizabeth, which obviously doesn't happen in the book, and there's just that shot 
of I think it's Henry Claval who's on the stairs just like kind of draped on them just kind of arm outstretched going no but it's nowhere near the lab he doesn't know what the fuck's going on it's just this random shot of him <laughs> on the stairs and it makes no fucking sense I like it's just I love it art art so I guess yeah the follow-up to that because like you know are shit adaptations like critically valuable <laughs> I mean, in some ways, yes, because, I mean, one of the things I always liked to do with that, like, particularly, like, the creation scene in the Brana Frankenstein was to basically talk about how this movie was a failure. It sort of wants to be an opera. If it was an opera, it would it would kind of work. You know, like all of the emotions are totally overwrought. They've busted out every single theme. They're also, you know, sort of trying to adapt not just the novel, like in spite of like the, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know, title, right? Like in spite of that, they're also trying to adapt other sort of screen versions of Frankenstein as well. And also like... Many, many people before and after, Kenneth Branagh cannot fucking resist being one of those guys who's just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to do the blo- I'm going to do the bride plot. What I really want is, you know, compliant, genetically modified vagina. That's really what this is about. I'm going to go there, you know, mm-hmm. like and the dream. Also- Great. When he was doing that, when he was making Helena Bonham Carter into his compliant vagina, he also started sp- sleeping with her and broke up with Emma Thompson. I know. What a but. Shade of it all. But, but, but she married Greg Wise, hot Willoughby from Sense and Sensibility. So as far as I'm concerned, she has fucking won that deal. Oh, God, yeah. Like, But I mean... How could you do that to Emma Thompson? I mean, Alan Rickman, I mean, that was fiction, but he has a lot to answer for. But, like, how would you do that? Because Greg Wise is still really fucking handsome as well. I was sniggering when you were talking about the creation scene because I know for a fact that Alex repeatedly referred to that with the eels as the spermy boys in throughout her lecture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it basically is. It's a giant injection of spermy boys. Like that's that's all it is. Like I, I think I literally at one point, it, I because I, I, I hadn't seen it before, and then I was just stumbling. You know how you try and get students on your side, yeah. so you say stupid shit. I was like, release the spermy boys, <laughs> and the whole lecture theater was like, yeah, we're on side now. Yeah. We'll pay attention. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. 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 That could have gone so wrong for you, though. Could have gone so wrong. What an absolute idiot. <laughs> You've got to take those risks. I mean, I think that, that there is a privilege to being a young woman. You know, I think if, if an older guy was like, release the spermy boys, <laughs> not, yeah. not quite as good, yeah. yeah. I mean, I try everything, like when I'm teaching, to try and make the students laugh, like not realising that they're not amused or just not reading the room. Cut my life into pieces. This is my research methodology. Um, are you happy for us to say like can follow you on Twitter at this or is that okay? Yeah, or? people want to. I mean, my Twitter is does say I'm an academic. I don't do Twitter as well as some of my academic colleagues who you know are like really, you know, really really into Twitter and are always like sharing things about like their teaching practice or you know sharing like some really nice quotations and things like that. And you know, my Twitter is just like hey, did you know that you can actually listen to this Harry Styles interview in Vogue? Oh my God, I didn't realize that. You know, it's like, please listen to Hamish Bowles narrating his interview with Harry, with Harry Styles. I mean, I'm now going to go and click on that because yeah. that, that interview looked beautiful. Yeah, I'm, I know what I'm more interested in, so yeah. you're good. Like, <laughs> so- I just... I don't like... Pres- like I, I will put like some stuff about my work on Twitter and stuff, but it's mainly... Mainly for banter, I don't like the presenteeism of me, 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 and like I don't trust people that that that, that was words. I don't trust people whose Twitter mm. presence is just their academic presence. Yeah, like I think that I enjoy when people have a a personal presence on their Twitter as well as the the academic thing, because then you can connect on like a on a personal level as well as on yeah. a, on a professional level. And I just yeah. think that I don't trust people. That only that only post like sensible things and not like 
dog picture. Very, no, it's super suspicious. Yeah. Super yes, suspicious. cats. Is is um is yours with you right now, Louise? Is she in the room? Mm, no, she's she's fucked off. She's just my cat is the worst. I love her so much. She is the absolute <laughs> worst though. Yeah. Um, my cat has thrown a bread knife at me. Um, <laughs> wow. That's um yeah, yeah, I mean they are murder beasts, you know. Yeah. 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 She, I, she, I, she's awful. Yeah, I, I also have a cat and you know, she is a beast and it's really weird because I recently watched this um really very disturbing film called The Beast um by this European director called um his last name is like Barwick. And it was, it, okay, so full disclosure, this movie was recommended to me by my tattooist. Perfect. My tattooist and I often have discussions about, like, weird European art movies and gay porn. These are two of our main Good. conversations. Legit. And they recommended to me this movie, The Beast, and finally watched it. And it's, it is just, like, sort of werewolf porn in some ways. But, like, arty you know and it, it's but arty it's fine yeah yeah super, super weird and uh yeah and and now i just keep calling my cat the beast but like <laughs> now i just like i also think of this movie and it's it's really weird where does werewolf porn become arty like where's the line like is there more vaseline like what how yeah it, it's mainly that like the werewolf suit is bad and the cock prosthetics are distressingly realistic. It's like when you see um, dildos, when they have veins in them. Yeah. Why? That's just why? like, why? No one needs that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Like, no one needs that. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird. I mean, like the film has virtually no plot. It's very very strange are you sure this wasn't just a porno yeah no it's 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 uh i so you know because i'm like a real film studies person i Mm -hmm. i I couldn't just art i yeah i couldn't just get this movie i had to get like the bfi box set you know for like oh yeah Mm -hmm. because i'm committed and it's got actually got an introduction by peter bradshaw from the guardian and he's just like this director, yeah, he is like a master of European cinema. He's also a pornographer. <laughs> Those like, two things are often so so aligned, though. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, respect <laughs> for actually just saying, like, yeah, this guy's a pornographer. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, that, we'll just end on that. That's fantastic. <laughs> you can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah, with an H, underscore Jane, underscore Art, with a double T. We've been Long My Praxis. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. A five-star output deserves five-star rating. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan, Dr. Amy Bromley. You can get in touch with us at lawmypraxis at gmail.com or at lawmypraxis on Twitter. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter Q and the number 69. Our shape this week, post-coital peach. Remember to tell all your friends with apologies for cross-posting. Please do not reply all. Bye. Coming up on Law My Praxis. Darwin's sexy crabs. Darwin talks about how certain kinds of crabs have developed really strong hook-like processes, he calls them, in order to clasp the female. We are joined by Dr. Rachel Murray. Insects not italicized incest yeah i'm just saying are you, are you actually now getting on board with that ahrc call out for how the arts and humanities can solve covid because it sounds like you are and now very suspicious with derrida yeah with derrida <laughs> it's always the answer yeah, it's always the answer